0: I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and this is TMI, the podcast where I hope to give you too much information, to test the boundaries, to push the limits, mine and yours, so we can all figure out how to overcome insecurity, embrace failure, and achieve success on our own terms. I'm the founder and co-managing partner of a global investment firm called Skybridge Capital. And I'm also the host of an iconic financial TV show, Wall Street Week. On this podcast, I will be sharing stories and lessons from my journey. And also, I'll be bringing in other successful guests from every walk of life that will add value to our mutual success. I want to make this communal. We're in this together. There will be too much information on finance, business, entrepreneurship, and achievement but also on self-coaching, on how to help yourself overcome things in your life. We all have things, believe me, that we've had to overcome. So we pick up the story in the summer of 1986. I'm seemingly on the right track, but I'm still overly motivated by all the wrong things like money and status and what my peers are gonna think of me when I show up at a cocktail party. I get into the Harvard Law School, I now know I do not want to be a corporate lawyer, and I'm getting slammed the first semester of Harvard Law School. Uh, And for those of you that remember the uh, paper chase in the 70s, or if you read 1L by the best-selling author Scott Turow, 1L means one first-year law school, uh, that writes about the commotion and the grind, the academic grind of the first semester at a place like Harvard where they give you an impossible amount of reading material and an impossible amount of assignments, Uh, and then your job basically is to be really good at skimming and understanding what's important and reverse engineering into what you think the professor is gonna ask you on the test, as opposed to starting at page one and reading to page 15,000, okay? And so the indoctrination at Harvard the first semester uh, is to train you on time management and to try to figure out what's important uh, from the information you're getting as opposed to trying to read all the information. And so I'm dying. (laughs) I'm dying at the Harvard Law School. I want to stab my eye out with a butter knife. I drive home uh, to Long Island. It's Thanksgiving. I've got all my books. I'm going to preparing myself to study for the finals. And I tell my parents that law school is not for me. I should have never gone to law school. Um, I sh- I've probably realized that during the summer when I was working for that corporate law firm. And I would like to leave Harvard and go get myself a job. Okay, so if you're a Jewish mother listening to this or you're an Italian mother, you got the knife out yourself, you're ready to stab yourself. My mother flips out on me. She says, what are you talking about? You've got to finish. You've got to be a lawyer. I want you to be a judge someday. I'm going to tell that story about me and Justice Scalia in, a, in another podcast about why it's so important for the Italian mother to have the kid be a judge. I asked the justice that. But back on this story, I say, okay, Ma, forget it. I'm going to finish Harvard Law School. Okay, don't worry about it. I go back to Harvard, I take the exams, and now I'm trying to figure out what I'm gonna do with my life. But you know what? I'm still super, super focused on money. And so I gotta make money. You know, my parents don't have a lot of it, they've got enough of it, but I gotta pay back these school debts. And so what is the job that's gonna pay me the most that isn't being a lawyer? So I cross the river, the Charles River, I go over to the Harvard Business School, I go into their placement office, and I start reading. There's an institutional investor article written in 1985 about a firm by the name of Goldman Sachs, and there are a couple of guys in a boat and they're all rowing together, it's like cartoon caricatures of themselves. One of the guys is John Weidenberg, legendary uh, chairman of Goldman. The other guy is his co-chairman and CEO, John Whitehead, and shows them rowing the boat and there's people behind them rowing the boat and says, what makes the culture of Goldman Sachs so great? Institutional investor, seven-page article. Uh, and it talked about this firm. And in reading that article, I fell in love with that firm. I said, my god, these guys sound like they're uh, superstars. I've got to figure out a way to try to get a job at Goldman. And so I go into the placement uh, um, department. Uh, I find out who the head of placement is at Goldman. It's a gentleman by the name of David Darst, D-A-R-S-T. I said, OK, I'm going to give this guy a call. I try to introduce myself over the phone. I pick up the phone, call him. Leave a message. Doesn't return my call. Call him again. I leave a message. He doesn't return my call. And it dawns on me. I say, maybe this guy gets in really early. I'm going to start calling him at 7.30 in the morning. And so um, another memo uh, people listening. Okay, If someone doesn't return your call, chances are they're busy. Don't take it personally. Call him again. Uh, get the definitive no. It's always no until you ask the question anyway, so get the definitive no. I pick up the phone. I call David. Hello, this is David Darst. It's 730 in the morning. David Darst. I said, oh, my God. Thank God, David. I said, this is Anthony Scaramucci. I know I've been calling you the last week or so. I know you're the head of recruiting at, at Goldman. I really would love to work there. Is there. Can I mail you my resume? Are you ever going to be on campus? Can I, can I come and uh, see you? He says, well, listen. As a matter of fact, and this guy was from Tennessee, so he had a real accent. I can't do the accent that well. He says, but I'll tell you what. He says, I'll meet you tomorrow morning at 5.30 at Aldridge Hall at the Harvard Business School. I said, oh, my God, this is fantastic. I get the polyester suit back on. I'm um, going go over the bridge. I'm there at 5.15, and I'm waiting. Aldridge Hall, is February of 1987. I am freezing. No David Dorst. 5.30, no David Dorst. no David Dorst. 7.30, they finally open Aldridge Hall. And so I'm now sitting in the stairwell waiting for maybe this guy's going to come, maybe he isn't. I said, you know, I'm going to wait till 9.30. Maybe I got the time wrong, uh, but I'm not leaving. Okay, you want to talk about ambition? You want to talk about discipline and determination? There was no way I was leaving. I had the opportunity to potentially work at Goldman Sachs. At 9.15 in the morning... David Dorst and an entourage of people from Goldman are coming through the door. Uh, and how did I recognize him? There was a small picture of him in the uh, in the placement uh, office. I said, "Mr. Dorst." I said, "It's Anthony Scaramucci. I've been waiting here since 5:30 in the morning." He said, "5:30 in the morning? Why the hell would you be waiting here since 5:30 in the morning?" He said, "You told me to meet you at 5:30 in the morning." He said, "No, I didn't." I said, "5:30 p.m., not 5:30 a.m." Oh! Don't, I said, oh my God, don't, don't. sir, I'm sorry I got that wrong. I said, will you still be able to see me at 5.30? He says, yeah, come back at 5.30. And I'm going to interview you. You believe this? So now I take the whole debt off from school. I go to the bookstore and I buy three books on the stock market. Okay, One of the books I'm going to recommend to you right now, it's, called, it's by Burton Malkiel. It's probably in its eighth edition. It's called The Random Walk on Wall Street. I buy that book. The second book I, I buy is a book written by David Dorst himself. It's called The Complete Bond Book. Now, that's probably out of print. The Markio book is still in, in print. And the third book I buy uh, is a book by Lewis Engel called How to Buy Stocks. And so I said, i got to get myself up to speed. I get the Wall Street Journal out. I get the New York Times. I buy the Barron's, which is a weekly news financial. And I'm reading this stuff in the Harvard Business School Library in preparation for this interview. Uh, and I go see David. I had the interview with him. Uh, he says, okay. He says, listen, I'm gonna invite you back down to Goldman Sachs. Uh, and so I go down to Goldman Sachs, uh, and they say to me, Hey, you you do you know a guy named Jim Kramer? Bye, bye bye! I said, Jim Kramer. I said, No, I don't know a guy named Jim Kramer. Yeah, he said, we hired him a few years ago. He just left here to start his own hedge fund. He is class of 84 from Harvard Law School. You may want to get in touch with Jim Kramer because he made the transition from being a lawyer into, mm-hmm. uh, into the hedge fund space and into working at Goldman Sachs. I said, okay, terrific. Do you have Jim's number? I said, I I'll certainly get in touch with him. Uh, and then they call me back, um, and, they, uh, and, they, and they say to me, that, listen, you're too young. Can't hire you this year. Um, You're uh, you're in your first year, in between your first and second year of school. We don't hire people until they're about to graduate, and then we make a consideration for their job. So it's just too early for you, but I want you to stay in touch with us. I said, okay. Big problem with that, though, is I didn't focus on any of these law firms. I was so intent on trying to get a job at Goldman, and so now I had no summer job. So I ended up working as a title closer for a title insurance company in Southampton. Now, this story gets even crazier. I'm out in Southampton. I'm driving a 1985 brown LTD uh, that my father bought used, I think, from a rental car company. Uh, And I'm driving around in this car in my suit, closing title. So what does that mean? Uh, If you have a residential home, you have to buy a title insurance for it. I'm there with the title insurance at the closing. And I'm spending my summer doing this. And the lawyer that I'm working for says to me, you know, I've got a client of mine that's going through a divorce. He's got a half-acre parcel in Central Islip, which is Exit 55 on the Long Island Expressway. uh, And he wants me to buy it from him. Uh, It's a piece of vacant land. I could probably put a house on it. I want you to go there and look at it. I said, okay, sir, no problem. Get in the car. I drive over there. I measure the property. It's actually pretty nice piece of land. It's already been cleared. You could put a nice, uh, you know, two-story house on this thing. Uh, What does the guy want? He wants $30,000 for the property. Okay, so what are the properties going for in that area? So I go to the county clerk's office. Again, there's no internet. Okay, there's no Zillow. And I go to the county clerk's office and I start looking up the prices of what people paid in the area. I go back to the lawyer and I said, listen, I said, I think this thing's probably worth forty-five dollars or $50,000 based on the prices. He's selling it to you in distress. Um, uh, you know, are you, you going to buy it? And he says, well, you know what? He says, I, I, I'm not going to buy it. I've made too many investments like this in the past. I've got too much land inventory. I'm not going to buy it. I said, sir, do you, do you mind if I buy it? He said, you buy it. He says, how are you going to buy it? I said, well, you know, I I uh, I read this book by Richard Allen about how to make money in real estate. It's how stupid I am, by the way. And I what, what I'd like to do is I'd like to I'd like to do a no money down deal. He said, well, how are you going to do a no money down deal? Okay, now this is the craziest part of this story. I can't believe I did this to my parents. And I and I got to tell you, I genuinely love my dad because my dad had a lot of trust in me at that time in my life. Still does, for that matter. But back then, so I said, well, my dad has like. of CDs, Certificates of Deposit, at the local savings bank, and it says here in this book that I could pledge those as collateral and get the loan from the bank to buy this thing. guy looks at me and says, all right, sounds a little crazy, but if you want to buy it, it's okay with me because I'm not buying it. So I go meet with the guy. I negotiate the deal. I do the closing myself because I have some remedial legal skills. I go to my father. I say, Dad, listen, there's a piece of vacant land. It's probably worth $45,000 or $50,000. I'm going to buy it for $30,000. I need you to sign this and pledge your CDs as collateral. I'm going to get this demand loan from the bank. Okay, remember, this is uh, July of 1986. We buy the land in August of 19... I'm sorry, I said 86. I meant to say 87. We buy the land in 1987. It's a piece of vacant land. It's now... It's now August of 1987. Dad, we got to sell this piece of land, okay? And so now my dad is starting to realize that he's got a uh, obligation on this loan. My dad never a guy that ever really wanted any debt, and so he's panicking a little bit, which is making me nervous. And so I get I get a brochure together. I take some pictures. Uh, and I make a I make a photostat of it at the local library in Port Washington, and every person I'm meeting, I'm handing them this uh, piece of paper. Then I go into the yellow pages. Okay, so for you millennials out there, you probably don't remember those things. Those those large phone books that your parents used to have in their house. And I look up contractors in the area, and I start cold calling contractors, and I say, Listen, I've got this piece of land. Ba 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 ba. It's worth probably fifty. I'm willing to sell it to you for $45,000 at a 10% discount of what it was. And so now I'm driving after work to meet contractors and developers with this piece of land and boom, Mike Helian, he says, I actually like it. He says, uh, I'll give you the $45,000. <laughs> I said, you will. Okay, this is fantastic. I set the whole thing up. I called a lawyer out in Southampton. I said, listen, I got the land sold. He goes, you're absolutely crazy, kid. I can't believe you pulled this off. Uh, it's October the 16th, 1987. Okay, so people listening to this that are a little older know that three days later, the stock market's going to crash on the 19th of October. I close on the piece of property for $45,000. Okay, so what are the lessons here? Number one. Absolutely crazy to have done that, you know, but you have to be a little crazy if you want to be successful. you got to dream big. Number two, you got to have some providence in life. You have to have some luck. Uh, and the good news for me is we were able to sell the thing before the stock market crashed. I don't think we would have been able to sell it. And P.S., one of the stupid things about me is I didn't understand the carrying costs of that property and all the real estate taxes that were associated with it, which would have frankly eaten up the profits if I didn't sell it. And so there I am. It's October of 1987. I've started my second year of Harvard Law School, and I've got the money to pay for the first semester from the uh, real estate speculation. So I like telling people these stories uh, because it's an improbable, uh, it's an improbable start uh, to a career. Um, Which is, you know, at that time loaded with ambition, loaded with insecurity, loaded with anxiety, uh, but also dreaming big and thinking big. Uh, And I think this is the big, big lesson of this podcast. You have to figure out what the heck your goal is. Uh, It frankly, really doesn't matter uh, what it is, but you need to reach for something. You know, uh, uh, Mike Tyson says that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Uh, if you said to me 30 years ago that I was going to end up as the CEO and managing partner and founder of SkyBridge, I would say, boy, that's super improbable. Who knew that was going to happen? Certainly didn't think that 30 years ago, but I did have a plan. You got to have a plan. You got to be disciplined. You got to get up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to lay out a plan, and I'm going to execute. And then you have to think about the things that you're the most fearful of, and you got to condition yourself to do those things. The things that I was most fearful of is actually making these calls, taking the elevator ride up to see the guy at Hughes Hubbard and Reed. Who the hell am I? Why would this guy actually even want to see me? And it's sort of this gutting it out. It's like the asking the girl out on the date, uh, uh, not sure if she's going to say yes or not, and not sure if your ego could handle the failure. Um, and so here are some of the key takeaways. Number one, uh, you got to have a plan, uh, and you got to be willing to get up in the morning and develop the habits of executing your plan. Number two, uh, if you're fearful, let me give you really good news and really bad news. Okay, the good news is everyone else is fearful. Okay, so that should give you some comfort. The bad news is is that if you don't overcome your fears. You're never going to get to where you want to be, Uh, whether you're an actress uh, trying out for auditions, a person looking for your first job, uh, a person looking to start their business. uh, You're going to be fearful and you're going to have trepidation, so you have to condition yourself each day to overcome those fears. Last thing, and this is a super important thing, um, you're going to die. Okay, Steve Jobs said this in his uh, Stanford University speech in 2005. We'll post this up on our website, Uh, but his speech was fantastic. He's like, hey, you're going to be dead for a very long period of time. Uh, Live through your fear, fight through your fear, and sort of do the things you want. And so this brings me uh, to an email uh, that I got recently from Mike from Boston. Okay, Mike has a decent job. He's got good pay, but he's miserable. He needs a change. It pains him to think of finding a new job. Will he make the same salary? What will the people be like? How does he muster up the courage to take that risk? You see, this is the the big anxiety for most people. Uh, Emerson once wrote that most men uh, live their lives in quiet desperation. Uh, they're quietly desperate because uh, they're afraid to move. They've got a secure job or they've got some secure income. Um, and so they say to themselves, uh, yeah, the people around me may not be the best, or uh, I may not have even the best political situation, but I'm making enough money to get by, and so I'm too fearful to move. Uh, and that's a central piece of this podcast. You have to, uh, when you think it's right, and you hear it in your inner voice uh, that you need to move on, you have to have the guts to do that. Uh, and I'm telling you, even if it doesn't go well in the beginning, uh, the trajectory that you're on will be more exciting. Uh, it'll fill your life a little bit more adrenaline, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and I really believe this firmly in my heart, that if you don't do that, you can't really get yourself on the adventure, the business adventure, that you were meant to be on. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read one, one more email. Uh, Parker from Chicago, I just got a promotion but I'm intimidated about taking on more than I feel that I'm qualified for. The team reporting to me has more experience. Suggestion to me is how should I lead this team? Okay, so this is a fascinating email. We have all been in this situation before uh, where we feel like a fraud. Uh, I don't know why that is, but every one of us walks into a situation. It could be a uh, minor leaguer who just graduated the major leagues. It could be somebody coming out of college about to enter the NBA. It could be me walking into Langdell Library to sign in. There's an official ledger. Justice Scalia has signed it. Barack Obama has signed it. Mitt Romney has signed it. There's a ledger where they want your signature at the Harvard Law School, uh, your first day entering class. When I walked in the Langdell Library and I signed this big, stupid-looking, uh, papyrus-looking piece of paper, I was so nervous and felt so insecure and felt so fraudulent that uh, who was I, okay, to be standing there signing this thing? Who was I to ultimately end up at Goldman Sachs? And so, so I say this to you, Parker, from Chicago. Uh, step into the role. Imagine yourself doing a great job in the role. And always think about three things when you're leading a team. Number one, the first responsibility for a leader is to make the people around them look better, be better, uh, be better at their jobs. Uh, The best compliment a leader can get is that uh, he's helping me with my job. Derek Jeter... The Yankee captain, the reason why they voted him Yankee captain, he was never concerned about his own stats. He was never concerned about his own position. He was more concerned about the people around him and about winning. So always think about that as your personal philosophy. Remember, we're here to make our own mark, or as Steve Jobs would say, to dent the universe. How are you going to dent the universe Uh, And the only way you can dent the universe is to dream big, think big, be willing to fail, uh, and develop the habits of courage to fight your way through that failure. We're going to talk about failure uh, and success next time and some of my personal shortcomings. Until then, you can reach us at podcasts at skybridgeinsights.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at at Scaramucci. Thank you, and have a prosperous week.